This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzato, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thanks again for tuning back in to the Future of Cybercrime podcast. If you're new here, Kella's Future of Cybercrime podcast is dedicated to helping security teams, ideally like yourselves, succeed with cybercrime threat intelligence. In each episode, what I'll do is interview a security practitioner to distill their best practices, lessons learned, even actionable takeaways for you to succeed in defending yourselves and your organizations against cybercrime. Today, I'm speaking with Joseph Carson. He has a very prolific background, ethical hacker, still and continuously creator, security expert, a digital forensics expert as well, a keynote speaker, a very well-known author, and also a fellow podcast host. I am excited to have you on, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Many thanks for the warm welcome. And it's really a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy you know, everything we can do to make the world a safe place is my goal. So whatever value the listeners get out of this, I'm hoping to share as much best practice as possible because it really comes from a lot of years of experience in the industry. So I've been, I've been around a long time. So I'm hoping that some of that value would get across and, and then ultimately, you know, people will be able to not only apply it to their work life, but also apply it to their personal life because security is not just about protecting businesses. It's about protecting our way of life or society around us. And a lot of these attacks, you know, take down businesses, but they can sometimes wipe out people's entire digital life. And not just from a data perspective, but also from financially. Absolutely. You've touched on a lot there. Let's dig into (laughs) every bit of that. How about first, let's talk about your background. 20 plus years. I don't want to date you here. And I'm going to take (laughs) this from a wisdom's perspective. Let us know about your background. I've only given a, a tiny bit. My time in this industry has been close to 30 years now, I was around, well, security wasn't security. Security was actually just something you did in addition. And we were, I was laughing when I was talking to an old, a really good friend and, and colleague yesterday, we were talking about that, you know, security then was a key to the door where the computer was. So it's really evolved over the years. And so when we actually, you get down to the fundamentals, my career has really vastly changed over the years. The basics is always fundamentally the same, how the fundamentals and things work. We still have connectivity and we still have computers and we still have operating systems and software. And it's how they get deployed and how they get used is what changes over the years. But yeah, I've been close to 30 years in the industry. A large part of my early career was in system administration, help desk worker, you know, making sure that systems were working. A lot of that was in the uh, health industry. So a lot of the projects I worked on was things like patient health records. So to make sure that they were accessible. And one of the actually first projects I worked on was digitalization of medical records, which was taking them from paper and putting them into the computer. And a lot of those projects was to quicken the turnaround time and make them more efficient, more accurate, so that doctors could make sure that they're diagnosing and understanding the medical records accurately, rather than trying to understand, you know, if you ever see doctor's handwriting, it's not the easiest to understand. Hopefully but, that um, isn't what you had to. Digitalization was a lot of trying to interpret poorly written uh, handwriting, uh, Um. which wasn't easy. (laughs) So a large part of my first part of the career was all, and even in the late 90s, I worked as a, in the ambulance service. And I think that was one of my really career changing moments was the ambulance service, because 
then it was when the systems weren't working, it was not a, just a matter of an SLA. My SLAs, if I didn't meet them, meant that people died. And for me, that was a major impact. That was something that really made me understand about, you know, high critical systems and how important it is to make sure that they're always available and having supply chain and having, making sure you've got duplication as much as everywhere. So the working the endless service, that was a big realization. You know, previously it was non-critical systems I worked on. You know, you could do without a day of those systems, but in the endless service, it was minutes. So for me, it was a big realization about the criticality of systems and how it impacts your way of life. Ultimately, you know, if somebody has an accident, making sure the ambulance gets there on time within 23 minutes can save, you know, somebody's life and to make a big difference. So for me, that was a big change in my career of understanding about how technology is not just about, you know, a computer, but it was actually about, you know, making sure critical services function and improve them all the time. And it was also about innovation as well. And it wasn't just about maintaining. It was always looking at ways to innovate. And then was we were one of the first to connect ambulances to the network. <laughs> not very well, <laughs> but we connected ambulances to the internet. Yeah. And what that was is that EKG meters and ambulances, for example, and defibrillators, we were able to connect those to old Nokia telephones. I mean, if anyone remembers Nokia. And ultimately, what we were doing was we were sending a fax from the actually ambulance to the emergency room so that doctors could diagnose patients before they arrived. And that was a big thing because having that, you know, moments of, you know, really critical information, you could already prep the emergency room with the right equipment before somebody came in. And that made, you know, a difference in life and death scenarios when doctors already knew what they needed to, to be and had the right people with the right skills in the emergency room uh, when those victims and patients arrived. So this is something kind of, you're always looking at innovations. And then kind of another part of my, then I changed careers to working in the foreign exchange money markets. So it was no longer about life and death, but it was about hundreds of millions of, yeah. of dollars and euros. You're touching on all these key elements of, of what makes cybersecurity, cybersecurity though. So now you're getting into the finance Absolutely. idea. The finance side, and this was one of the things that I started realizing that I wanted to put myself in the person that I was serving, you know, from the system side into understanding about what it's like to be in their job. And mm -hmm. realizing that there's humans behind these machines. And uh, so not only just being an architect, I was doing a, a network operations center or like a SOC position at the time. So making sure that we had visibility of the entire network. And it was an application okay. service provider. So it was a cloud-driven solution so the banks could access foreign exchange money markets across the world. And then it was really about, you know, <laughs> the criticality was for change for me. I was actually more relaxed in that job than I was in the prior one with life and death. When somebody was shouting down the phone asking me where the 300 million US dollars went, I was very calm. <laughs> so a lot of people would be in a stressful situation with that. But uh, for me, it was something that was much easier to deal with. But uh, at that time, it was really about investigating, you know, understanding about transactions and what was happening. But it really meant I really wanted to understand what it was likely to be in those people. So I actually went and got certified as a money markets for foreign exchange trader to really get to understand. Because I think one of the things we miss in our job is really understand about who it is we're serving, more about the business, more about the risk, more about the processes and the people and how they get measured. And the best way we can do it is putting ourselves in those positions, is right. working alongside and listening. So that was a big moment in my career as well, where it made me realize about, you know, who it was I was serving and trying to understand better rather than being, a, you know, where we are traditionally very enforcers of security and you must do it this way. And, you know, we're always hardening. We're always sometimes making friction to the, the people we're serving. And ultimately, it made me realize that we need to change that. We need to make security actually frictionless. 
So that was a big change. And that time in my career, that was where I really transitioned from being not just a knock administrator, you know, but yep. actually transitioning being security. And it was actually interesting because at the time, the company I worked for, we were a secondary victim of a major DDoS attack. And one of the kind of renowned attacks, I always love, I love going back and looking at the article. So Steve Gibson, who's another amazing security researcher in the industry and well-known and has, has been in the industry for a long time, his company, GRC.com, was under a DDoS attack. And the company I worked for, we use the same ISP and we're a secondary victim. So I remember that whole working to restore services and to get things back on track. And that's where I started to understand as much as possible and start to research into DDoS attacks and really try and make sure that what was the best way to defend. Because the company I work for, I want to make sure that we would have that same service outage again okay. by going down that path. So that was my transition into getting into security. And then since that, the last 20 years of my career has been focused on security and every element of it from high availability to architectural designs, to cybersecurity awareness training, to the perimeter itself, to applications, to patching systems, to you know ethical hacking, understanding the mindset of attackers. Because I think for me, that's one of the most important things. If, if we understand the mindset and we understand about you know what they think about when they're going down the path of getting into systems or getting access or doing social engineering, we can get better to understand about what things we can do to make it more difficult. Mm. If we understand... And, and to be honest, most of the incidents that I've, you know, I've also do a lot of incident response in the past 10 years or so, getting my hands dirty and helping organizations and helping victims to the path to recovery. And this has been always an interesting because it allows me to get really close to the action because if you're doing this response, you're really in there in the aftermath and you're seeing the footprints, the breadcrumbs that's left behind. All right. And you're trying to recover, kind of restore that. I would say there's a metaphor I use, which it's, it's almost like you have this massive jigsaw puzzle and somebody threw it up in the air. And basically all the pieces went everywhere and half the pieces are lost. And mm. an instant responder's responsibility is to pick up all those little jigsaw pieces and try to understand the big picture. And sometimes you're only left with maybe a handful of thousands of pieces of, of right. evidence. And you're trying to understand about how did the attackers get in? What did they change? How they moved around? How long they've been there for? And that's sometimes for me, it's really interesting because it allows me to start putting myself in their shoes and start thinking about what were they thinking about? And, you know, instant response is almost like the reverse of hacking. <laughs> it's, it's you're doing it in reverse. Yeah. I'm looking at this piece of evidence. What does this tell me? How did they get to this machine? Or what technique did they use to get to this machine? And so it was a really intriguing approach. So for me, that's one of the things I, I really got heavily involved in. And it allows me to really understand that mindset. So, and the goal ultimately is there's no 100% protection. We have to realize that. It's all about making sure we force the attackers to make more mistakes. I'll just quickly pause you for a moment because we have some great transitions that you've gone through. Being close to the healthcare industry, then in the finance industry, we see these two being the biggest uh, consumer <laughs> cybersecurity in a way. Then you're involved by proxy, I'd say, as a secondary, by secondary effect, at least to DDoS attack. So now you're getting full on exposure of what kind of headache that is, yes. and what loss is incurred in that. And that seems to be that pivotal moment in your life where you said, I need to make sure this doesn't happen. I need to sure. secure. <laughs> this journey, I wouldn't say a lot of young people in cybersecurity today are familiar with. Not only seeing the onset of a digital revolution as we know it for the millennial generation and Gen Z today, because that's what they would define, right? Uh, digital revolution goes back for many people. <laughs> 
and, and multiple times. I, I've, right. I've seen, I haven't just been through the one digital yes. revolution change and, and it's been multiple and, along the way. My introduction was in that first change from mainframes into desktops. So even the first computers I worked on, medical records, was mainframes. Was, I had a punch hole uh, yeah. that was actually giving commands to the computer to take backups. So for me, it, we've been through many revolutions. And it's hard to for people to think about in, in, in today's industry of how much we came through. When we look at cloud and, and virtualization, all the cool technologies we're dealing with, they yeah. started back in the 60s. <laughs> it's not, this is it's not, not long ago. <laughs> it's not, not long ago at all. Uh, relatively not long ago, though how much we can consume and adapt as humans is is impeccable given what where we are now. Though I one thing I really enjoy that you said was that metaphor, as if throwing jigsaw pieces into the sky and then trying to pretty much catch them and put them together. I thought this is cybersecurity writ large. For those in asset management, that's what they're doing. For those in vulnerability management, that's what they're doing from a different perspective, having to see where it all makes sense. And then going forward, security researchers, intelligence uh, researchers, and then we have incident responders. Everyone is trying to make sense of so much that may or may not make sense and then just do filter and filter out through the noise. And that part of your career, you honed in, you took it, and then you went further. You became an ethical hacker. So let's talk about that. Why? So prior to that, so even before the DDoS, myself was always curiosity. I was always wanting to learn how things work. So even prior to that, I was always in the mid to late 90s. I was always into hacking, but hacking myself, <laughs> okay. um, hacking my own equipment. But it wasn't kind of, it was a, kind of my personal side versus my job. So when I realized in the job side in the career from that DDoS attack, I realized that maybe this is actually something I can do because it was my passion. It was something that was something that was really, I enjoyed learning. Ironically, I was just doing some hard drive cleanups and I find a lot of my old hacking notes and materials from the late 90s. And I was looking through, and I was like, oh my goodness. And when I looked at that and I was realizing about, you know, how similar it is, I was reading some of the, the books that I'd had at the time and how similar it is to what it is still today. And, um, it's actually just <laughs> modernized a little bit. The terminology is still about slightly changed, but it was actually quite interesting when I was going through that and, and realizing. But yet, absolutely, as you said, once I realized that, that it was a possibility for me to take that as a career, I honed in and I've dedicated you know, the last pretty much 20 years of my career to using my knowledge and skill sets and ultimately to make the world a safer place. We have this misunderstanding from the term hacker that we oh, sometimes we misunderstand, we think of as a criminal act, but hacking is not a crime. Hacking is a mindset, it's a skill, it's a curiosity. Yes. And majority of hackers and, and, and ethical hackers like myself, I always use the term ethical hacker because a lot of people don't, when we talk about it in the mass general public, it's important to use ethical because some people in my industry don't like using it because they think hackers just by itself is good. But sometimes we lose context. We lose the understanding of you know what it is. And, and there's always that negative approach associated to it. So I always think it's important to make sure we keep the context and that we have to understand that majority of ethical hackers and hackers out there, they're like myself. We want to make it a safe place to enjoy and have fun living our lives. And majority of hackers are not criminals. They're there with an intentional motive. And it's really understanding is that there's a few, of course, out there that want to make, you know, money. Mostly the, the hacking crimes is financially motivated and they will do what they can. And, and they, some do take that criminal path. Ultimately, you know, just like any, any society, some people do go into crime. And even in the digital society, that is a path that some people choose. 
So for me, it's really about, you know, making sure. And so sometimes my hope is that we can catch some of those earlier and, you know, when they're playing and curiosity. And I am hoping that we can catch them earlier and make sure we point them to the path of good before they do, you know, start taking the criminal path even further. Yeah. So there is that, you know, transformation, hopefully, that we can get more people taking the good path and, and choosing mm-hmm. the good side. But ultimately, my goal is, is to use my skills as much as I can to make it safe and fun. Sometimes we take hacking as a scary thing. And I even, you know, we look at report after report. And in the marketing side, in the security industry, we also put a lot of fear in because we try to fear people into buying something. Or And I think it's, it's the wrong method to go. I think it's always about how are we helping? How are we reducing the risk? How are we making people's lives better? And I think that's the wiser approach. And at the same time, it's let's have fun while we do it. Uh, Because also, not only, you know, do we make it scary, but we scare people from joining our industry. A lot of people look at it as from a scary perspective, as do we really want to get into the scary, fearful, fearful world? Um, Yeah. Or do I choose the simpler path? And I think that we really, we have an image problem that needs to change. And I want to be out there showing how fun it can be. One of my fun workshops that I tend to do on occasion is also doing hacking gamification and making, you know, hacking gamification a fun thing to do where it brings people together. It's, I always call it, it's like the reverse of an escape room. So you ever do escape rooms? Mm-hmm. Or basically, you're in a room and you, you try to get out. Um, hacking is the reverse of that, only in a digital version where you're actually trying to get in and uh, ultimately, you know, making it a fun way. And it's a great way to learn as well and to have teamwork. And so for organizations, that's one of the things I think is a good thing that they should always incorporate into. Absolutely. The image problem is pervasive everywhere, even within our own organizations for security teams. Security teams have their own image problem within an organization. It's not seen as the hackers organization. It's seen as the slowing us down organization or the rules and the policing organization. Mm -hmm. And then writ large in this world, just by way of what is projected as far as media consumption and in entertainment, hackers are then seen as an entirely different subset. Uh, just unrelated to these people and their own security teams and their own IT teams embedded within them if they're smaller teams. So I agree with you. There's an image problem in many layers. I, again, am going to go a little bit back into Mm -hmm. something you said. You went into your old notes and your hard drive and you saw where you came from. We had another episode with Harlan Carvey and he spoke about how there are so many tactics and techniques and ideas about cybersecurity that were taking place as he was fruitioning in his career that he held on to, and they enriched the entire threat intelligence process. And today, there are a lot of practitioners who are set on newer ways, things that have been taught in university or through prep books that don't convey the entirety of the message. And when you go back into those notes, do you see certain things I'm asking you? Do you see certain things that you say, oh, threat researchers, intelligence researchers, they deserve to know this. They deserve to know Absolutely. that as well. Absolutely. One of the things is that I came from an era where you had to build it yourself because it didn't exist. So you had to learn how the fundamentals work. You had to learn really getting into the very basics of machine code, assembly, binary. And that's still today what everything's built on. And this is where it really gets into is that when I look back in my notes, all of it still actually applies today. Ironically, it's still valid. Just the terms of or how you use it, it's slightly different but it's the fundamental building blocks of hacking. And the difference is today, what I find from when I went to university is you learn the basics. I learned COBOL at university, which is ironic. 
which is like a horrible language. Yeah, oh, that's- <laughs> so that's how old I am. So I did COBOL. Wasn't very good at programmer because uh, I remember every time uh, I finished a project and my teacher would come up and she'd just slap her hands on, on the keyboard and then your, your program would crash and you're just going, oh my God, all my hard work and I didn't do basically validation verification of the, of the inputs. So for me, learning that fundamentals understanding and when I look at what we, sometimes what I see the, unfortunately, the quick path to our industry is to learn how to use a program or how to follow a specific methodology. And I think we're trying to fast pace a lot of this, which is important and good, but I think it's really still important to make sure, because I think the big difference is that there's one, as somebody who knows how to use a program and can go through, you know, basically the steps in order to make it work and to do a vulnerability scanner to the system and so forth. Mm -hmm. But to fundamentally understand how it works and the mindset, that's what we need to be making sure we also educate is the thought process. How do we make sure that when it doesn't go to plan? So when you're doing an ethical hack, and I, this is why I did an episode a while back with Nahum, with Ben uh, Nahumzak, and we talked about when a lot of the pen testers and ethical hackers do their videos online, but they, they show the shortcut, they show the, the edited version, but they don't show the rabbit holes. And when I'm doing something like Capture the Flag, and I think the rabbit holes are important because it shows you how to step back out of it and find a different way. And this is what we don't teach people, is that, yes, you don't always find the right path the first time, that you have to understand that I'm stuck in a rabbit hole. You have to think about what you're looking at, how maybe it's working in the background. And sometimes you have to step back and look at the bigger picture again. And we don't teach people how to do that. You know, Hackers will fail multiple times until they get the yes. successful path. And what we've done, unfortunately, is we've got people to think that the first time is going to be that successful and that it'll be quick and easy. And, but it's hard. And those are the things that we also have to make sure that we teach and train. It's the mindset. It's the process. And no matter what you use, you know, technology-wise or process-wise, you can all make it slightly in order to find the right, the right path. And you will fail multiple times on that path as well. And that's what we have to make sure because it is hard. And this is not, you know, it's a, you're dealing with a lot of technology and a lot of different segments and a lot of different skill sets. And it's finding the one that you enjoy doing because, you know, when you do get those rabbit holes, you do find the failures that you'll enjoy those along the way as well. Because even I, I, I remember doing a machine on one of the gaming platforms for Capture the Flag. And I spent the entire weekend just hitting my head on the table trying to figure out what am I missing? And when I realized afterwards, after finding the right path, it was enlightening. And I enjoyed actually, you know, when I look back at that time, I'm thinking, cool, I learned a lot. I learned a lot of things that could have made my path much easier. But I learned a lot of what failure meant as well. Mm. Everyone needs to hear this. Uh, success is no longer a la mode. It's really just success from mistakes. That, that is. And unfortunately, even in general cybersecurity, when we hear the news, no one talks about the success. <laughs> we never hear huh. about the good things. Right. It's always about company A had a data, data breach. And this is the impact. Yeah. We always talk about, so the news and media make cybersecurity out to one of the things that you know, we were talking briefly earlier is one of the, the fun things. And one of my old bosses we were chatting with recently was the big, the Y2K. It came in and went. And the years before Y2K, we were always worried, but it was the doomsday. It was the end of the world. Everyone was building bunkers and stocking up and preparing because the Y2K was going to crash all the computer systems. And when we look back at it, it came and went. And that's the moment where I say, is it, you know why? Because it, we did our job. We did it really well. We patched the systems. We got things working. We fixed the problems. 
And that's why Y2K came and went without a big, there was none of the doomsday scenario that happened. And we, in the industry, we tend to forget those moments. And I think it's really important to look back. And, and even last year, the ransomware was slightly declining. We had to look back at the, you know, we've done what, it's not to become complacent. We should never become complacent. You know, it's always a high risk and a high threat. We should never forget that. But we should look back and think about, you know, we have had successes. Last year, 2022, was a good year that we should look back and say, we helped organizations not become victims of ransomware. We should celebrate those. We, we should take the moment to, you know, look at the successes, look at what we did well and report on that much better than what we've done. Security, it is not great at celebrating. <laughs> uh. We don't celebrate as much as we should because sometimes the industry, you know, businesses tend to only talk about it when it's the bad time, when something bad's happened or you're dealing with a, a hot incident. That's when the CISO and that's when the security team, you know, really get the, they, they get the attention is when it doesn't work. You know, that's, that's yeah. ultimately, unfortunately, how IT has uh, historically been. There are just some major cultural shifts globally that have to happen. People have to be more coveting of their own privacy. Mm -hmm. And in a time like this, especially with social media platforms, the idea is not to be so coveting of your privacy. So there has to be something terrible <laughs> to make them coveting, right? And the, when people start to catch on to that, I think cybersecurity, anyone who's in this profession is looking forward and they're already there, maybe, maybe five, 10 years, always ahead of what might happen, what might go wrong. I mean, that's what intelligence is. The bedrock of and the foundation of intelligence is that. So it takes people who aren't involved a lot of time and a lot of mistakes. And it's only until they hear about someone that's, you know, next to somebody they know that has been compromised in a way, will they even care just a bit? No one ever thinks it can happen to them. And organizations are following that same culture. So larger cultural shifts outside of security must happen and then inside. But this is the world anyway. This is the world anyway. One question I have for you. The state of cybercrime today compared to when you began, how would you describe the evolution and where would you say we are? I think when I started my career, a lot of the times it was, it was mostly hacktivism. It was people, you know, testing out their skills and knowledge. So you can go back to the GRC.com DDoS attack. And it ultimately was a 13 year old kid that basically was behind the botnet that basically took down multiple organizations. It was all about, you know, people curiosity about, you know, what they could do. Uh, that's been along the way, but I think the pinnacle moment was around the late 2000s, uh, maybe around 2010 to 2013, where a lot of this started to become much more how to make money out of the crime. And I think this is where we started seeing that transition. So when I started, it was, a lot of it was hacktivism, just curiosity. People, you know, want, looking for information, wanting to get access to things they shouldn't have, have access to, or wanting to test new toys and new methodologies, or reverse engineer, or try to, you know, get licenses for things that, you know, cost a lot of money. <laughs> that, that ultimately, you know, was hard to get music without actually having to pay for it. Or hard, that, yeah. A lot of that was the early days of hacking, was as how to get access to things you should not have for free. And then again, that, the methodology and that the kind of motto back then was, you know, information should be free. And, you know, so that's one of the, the kind of the motives. But fast forward to the, today, majority of the criminal activity around cyber threats today is financially motivated. It's all about making money quick and making lots of money. Uh, and we can look at a lot of these major ransomware gangs. They've made hundreds of millions, some of them even in the billions of yeah. dollars in financial benefits from basically these crimes. And the big difference as well is that it's cross-border. It's international. A lot of these criminals are sitting in countries where their governments are giving them safe havens. 
as long as they turn a blind eye and they, they don't target their own citizens. So they're getting uh, that ability. And sometimes it may not even be a crime in those countries. The, the laws may be so draconian or so old that it's not even considered a criminal act. So this is really where the large, and, and you've had the convergence of not only the digital criminals, you know, the traditional hackers, but you've also got into organized crime who've also moved in and started funding and started looking to expand in digital crime mm. as well. And uh, this is where the acceleration has been. And, and ransomware has been the perfect weapon in that regards. Because if you, well, of course, you got cryptocurrency, you got a lot of companies who are very dependent now on digital services to serve their business. And when you come in with ransomware, it's basically taking your system down, it's encrypting your data, it's stopping your services, it's stealing your data, it's threatening to disclose it. And if there's criminal activity in that, potentially, then you become basically also much more against things like compliance and regulators as well. And this becomes a major type of scenario for a business to become a victim of that. And the cryptocurrency make it all possible in the criminals to get paid. So it's it almost the ransomware is the kind of perfect criminal weapon in order to target a digital society. And I think that's the major threat. And of course, there's other types of things. You know, you've got financial fraud, which is really, you know, business email compromise or changing invoices or the flow of, of money. So there's always financial side doesn't always have to be ransomware. It can be other types of, of methods to get a financial reward. Some of them take longer. Uh, ransomware tends to be very quick. You know, it has an immediate impact, but stops the business from running. And therefore, you know, those executives really have to make quick decisions versus invoice fraud and other types of financial fraud are much long thought after. And then you get into also, there's a lot of romance scams as well that's on the increase, which is really sometimes twofold. It's one is to get financial motive out of unsuspecting victims or to get them to install something in their device, which they take back into their employer and give them access that way. So there's lots of different motives and the threats are increasing. Sometimes we hear mostly too much about government types of hacking, which is espionage, but that tends to be much less that right. people think about it. Sometimes you probably see it on equal power or even higher, but those activities tend to be more stealthy. We don't hear about them because ultimately espionage, they're all about basically having a political gain or geopolitical, you know, uh, information, knowledge about their foes and so forth. So, so they tend to be less impactful, much more preparation and sometimes giving a political edge against other governments. So. Those are all the same. And it also depends on what industry you're in. But uh, for me, I think ransomware is the perfect weapon for digital crime that all organizations should be ready to defend against. And I've seen companies, uh, I mean, I've come in as an ace responder into companies who have lost all their data. They don't know what their employees' contracts are. They've lost all of the details about well, even what their employees' performance was doing or how to pay their employees, how to pay their customers, invoices and suppliers, or lost everything, you know, what they had in the stockroom. I've seen individuals, not only companies, but I've seen individuals lose, you know, 25 years of their digital life, pictures of their kids, family members, you know, those who have passed away, all of that digital data gone and they're being held to ransom. And, and this is, you know, this is some things we have to deal with. So for me, ransomware is the perfect weapon and it's going to evolve. Even though we had a decline, it hasn't gone away and it is evolving and it will become, I believe that, you know, we will see newer variants yeah. that are not just about encrypting data but also preventing services. So I've seen a lot of refactoring of ransomware into things like Golang and Rust, which then makes it cross-platform, which means that now, you know, it's not just about, you know, traditional operating systems and clicking, people clicking at things, and that it will start to impact industrial controls into IoT devices, smart devices, will all be able to, you know, become impacted by ransomware. 
And that's something that we have to prepare for. We have to look at, you know, how do we mitigate that? But at the same time, having fun while we do it. <laughs> that's, you know, that is the scary part, but we can definitely you know, do it by enjoying the successes of making sure we prevent it. Well, we have the foresight. Absolutely. Uh, the, the intelligence is there. We see it yeah. coming. And even with, you know, a lot of the automation, you know, that's been used by, our, our, well, we refer to artificial intelligence side of things, uh, which is a big, big buzzword in our world. It's really automation. When you're, when you're a technologist, it's all about automating things. Yeah. But it means that these criminals can do things much faster. They can, you know, build much quicker things that would have taken much longer time and with less resources. That's ultimately what, what this enables. Okay. So it's something that we also have to be preferred for. So. There's a lot of technology out there that has good uses, but also can be weaponized uh, by criminals. That's the state of order in this world in general. Anything, anything good must be balanced by that bad. So it's it's great to have foresight and, and think of the ways that whatever advancement we make can be compromised. As far as the state of threat intelligence today and cyber defenders, how would you say they're prepared to handle? what you say we should be prepared to handle. That's one, right? So that's the how's foresight being addressed. But besides that, what is the state today in general? I think we're getting better. The important thing is that not all countries have equal capabilities. This is something we have to realize is that around the world, some companies and some countries have more advanced resources and skill sets and, and capabilities than others. And it's also what we've seen as well. We look at, you know, ransomware has changed its target. Now, the last year, more companies and countries in Latin America and South America became victims yeah. because they have less capability to hack back. If we look, you know, recently, of course, you know, how the Hive gang was taken down mm-hmm. was it was a hack back. So these ransomware gangs are realizing that, okay, well, let's make sure that we have a longer lifespan and a longer capability, and let's target geographical regions that have less capabilities to take us down. And, you know, have less capabilities in order to also as resiliency and, and they'll likely get paid. Not as much, but they will get paid without the fear of the hackback. So I, I just think the progression and the capabilities of some countries around the world has excelled quite significantly. And we are closing that gap. Definitely from criminal gangs. My fear is from a, a nation state perspective is that, that, you know, that's a bit more where it could be more impactful. Yeah, but it really comes down to hopefully... There's no motive for nation states in order to take that action. So that's just where it really comes that fine line. But we are like knowledge wise, you know, a lot of intelligence, a lot of understanding, a lot of capabilities, and we are getting better. We're getting better. This almost, I hope not to assume here, but does this assume that life is made easier for the attacker than it is for the defender? <laughs> Absolutely. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. they don't have limitations in scope. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we always laugh about is that, you know, the path to being a criminal is so much easier. They don't require certifications. They're practitioners. They go on and they learn. They've got a passion. They'll do it. So the bar for going into the criminal path is much lower than it is for getting into industry. And unfortunately, you know, some industries are still saying, you know, you need to be certified. You need to have these certain, you know, we need to take that perspective and, and think more about, you know, going back to the old way of learning on the job which is what it used to be. It used to be learn on the job. Not everyone can go down and afford the academic path or the certification path because it is expensive. Uh, and it means that you're separating a large part of society who want to be in the industry, who want to help, but just don't have the funds in order to get there. So we have to turn back to where we used to be, which is about taking passionate people who have the mindset and helping you know 
share our knowledge. They can become certified later if they wish to, but it's important to make sure we get more people interested and get in the industry. For me, this is really where we close the skills gap. We get more people from diverse backgrounds that um, it's not just about, our industry is no longer just about being a techie or a geek. Okay, well, that's, that's my background and I relate to that, but we have to get people who can communicate, who understand business, who understand people, who understand psychology. Even therapists, I've seen, I remember working in this response. I was watching the team burning out. They were just 24 hours a day working around the clock, trying to make their business survive the ransomware attack. And at the end, having a psychologist speak to them because of that, you know, it's like somebody going, you know, in in this response, it's almost like a war zone. That's the type you can have, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress just from having, working in an incident and having, you know, basically people who can take care of the people who's working in those stressful environments. I've worked, you know, as I mentioned, in the ambulance service and emergency services. So coming from that background, we had people that helped those emergency services because dealing with those crisis moments, you needed to have people who could take care of the people who's actually, you know, in, you know, dealing with car crashes and, and dealing with accidents or, you know, building collapses or fires. You had to, you know, there's a certain mental state, but it's the same in digital. I've seen the similarities in the working environments. And it's so important that we realize that if we don't fulfill that gap right now, there's a lot more people in our industry going to burn out much quicker. We will have people leave the industry, but we really need to make sure that we take care of the people as well that's responding, that's, that's keeping the lights on, that's working in these stress environments. Some of them enjoy doing it, but mm-hmm. time takes its toll. Like when you're doing this repeatable and you see the scurvy things, you see the impacts especially even those who's working in, in other digital crimes, you know, human trafficking and all of kind of horrible images and stuff that, that, that people see that that's a very stressful job. And uh, it's also part of cybercrime as well that people have to deal with. So having people who can take care of the mental state uh, is critical as well. This, it will, again, take some time. I mean, cybersecurity was more a club before it became a profession. And then we have, right, our first CISO comes in in the 90s not too long ago. And then it's made into a absolute profession that then has a business function that follows. And still today, we have certain sizzles that aren't taken seriously and that their reporting lines are obscured to their executive. Or, you know, they get like... It's like <laughs> the police or the you know, auditor of their own boss, <laughs> which is ironic. It's like, how can you work in that structure that you're there to, you know, in working under a hierarchy? that you're there to make it more difficult for your boss. <laughs> the organizations had to realize that it's there to, to make sure it's all about risk reduction. And that's where I think it's really important. When you look back at Miko Hippen and who said, you know, a, a great statement, a quote, which was, we're no longer protecting computers today, we're protecting society. And I think that's the key difference is that we have to think about that specific, what does that mean? Is today, when, you know, in security, we're not just about protecting IT systems anymore, is we're protecting the business services. And that's how we have to evolve into is that we're no longer silo, this silo department that's just about making sure computers are working, but we're actually making sure the services that those computers are delivering is working. And this is where we have to have that transformation. Uh, and it's, it's continuing. So this is where we see the CISO becoming bizos and you know risk officers are on the increase as well. So at the end, we will continue to evolve and, and find what is right for the business and society, and we will continue to learn. And that's ultimately, you know, it's the path and what we should be doing. Right. It's the only way through. And I do believe in cybersecurity in that, yes, it took some time 
to go from club to business profession, but no time at all in the grand scheme of things. And then now that, that it's a, let's just say it's a necessary part given regulatory bodies and what they have done for it, especially what GDPR has done. It's a necessary part of certain organizations. And now that it is solely, we can bring back that more nurturing club mentality with a little bit more ease, but this is entirely dependent on how many people we can get in because right now it's just not so attractive. So there, like we said, there's an image problem. So once we get through that, once we get also, yeah, one of the things I also is that some of the people in the industry that really, you know, how they uh, articulate it uh, through social media as well, doesn't make it something that's nice as well. There's a lot of really negative comments in social media Mm. in the InfoSec community. And it's it's always hard to see that. Uh, For me, I think we really need to be more open. (laughs) You know, a lot of people think about, you know, CISOs, oh, the CISO doesn't know how to code. They don't, they don't need to know how to code. They, they need, need to know how to reduce the risk of the business. <laughs> they can surround themselves with people who know how to code. And we have this, you know, kind of, they need to be like us time of mindset, but that's not true. You know, we need to be open. We need to make sure we're more inclusive, that not everyone needs mm-hmm. to have the same skill sets as we do. Right. And what value do they bring? And that's really important. So, you know, with it. and sometimes that's where, we're, unfortunately, uh, a lot in the industry do jump to. You know, it's just like how technical skill set is that person? Can they develop? You know, what, um, they're in a security role. How can they not actually know how to do certain like that's not, you know, ultimately they have a value uh, and the reason is because they understand the business that they're actually there to, to reduce yeah. risk from. And we have to start getting more into being inclusive and more open. And, you know, hopefully that image problem will evolve and will get better over time. Yeah. And if people have such a big problem with someone not knowing something, teach them. Exactly. <laughs> if you if you've got exclude. the critique, yeah. reach out and teach. It's as simple as that. Oftentimes, even in my career, and it's short, it's still growing. I've got a lot of time to go. I've had people say, you don't know this or you don't know that. All right. Well, you're telling me the problems. Give me the solutions. Tell me how to do it then. <laughs> exactly. I'm here. We're here. Let's go. And, <laughs> and, but, and that's, that's its life. That's all of my life is that, you know, I realize myself, I will never know everything. And uh, the important thing is that what I tend to do in my technique is I surround myself with amazing people that I can go to that will help me find the answer. Yeah. Um, so going back to the one where I was hitting my head against the table in the hacking game, that you know, capture the flag uh, machine that was so kind of difficult. I actually reached out to someone for help and they just gave me a little nugget about what to look for. So again, you know, I don't know everything. It's not my, my you know, huh? that's not where I'm an expert in, but I was able to make sure that I had the right people around me to help, you know, that were willing to teach that's me. It. That we're willing to share uh, and, yeah. and the right path. And that was actually one of my negative things that I had in the past was I was a perfectionist. That was one of the things in, in my career, in the early part of my career as a perfectionist. So I would never share any of my work until I knew it was like, it was the Mona Lisa. It was, it was perfect in every way. And for me, that was a negative part. And, and one of my you know, former bosses and mentors who, who really kind of transitioned me into security and helped me realize that sharing and being transparent but making it clear that this is not the finished work I'm still still working on it, still that, progressing it. it is. And being transparent and sharing uh, was something that it was hard for me at the beginning, but it turned me into a much better educator, a much better person to be inclusive and to help not only for me to find paths to get the right answer and to get not, it doesn't always have to be the right answer. It can be an answer that helps me ultimately mm-hmm. find what is the best way, but it also helped me be a better person actually being more open to sharing and helping people get the knowledge that I had. I think we should leave it at that because it's, it's the humble way. And Joe, that's where I hope we bring cybersecurity moving forward. 
I know we're up on time over here and we can just say so much more, but I'd, I'd really, really love for our audience to chime in with some feedback once this episode is published and give their ideas about where we can move forward, see if they resonate as well. You have the experience, you've had the time and you came out with a lot of wisdom and you're still growing as we all are. So it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And just before we head off, I'd love to give the listeners some idea of where they can reach out to you. Where's the best place to go to keep up with your work? So absolutely. There's there's three places that probably where I put the most of my content uh, and uh, where it's easy to reach out. Um, a lot of my books and uh, the podcasts and stuff, that's all available on the Delinea.com website. So if you're interested in, in my reports and books and resources and blogs and everything, that's where they get hosted. Otherwise, you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I'm quite easy, searchable and findable on LinkedIn. And I do kind of share a lot of my commentaries and thoughts and, and uh, also links to the podcast as well there. And then also on Twitter as well. So that's, you know, those are the three primary places that you can find me. And if you do have questions, feedback, you know, feel free to reach out to me in any of those locations. Thank you, Joe. Wonderful conversation today. Thank you for your time. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining in. We love to keep in touch with you. So feel free to reach out. And Joe, let's keep in touch. I'll be watching your work as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And many thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kellogg. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.